Hello and welcome to the February 2023 episode of The Seagull. The Seagull is the place to stay up to date on everything you need to know about the 102nd Intelligence Wing at Otis Air National Guard Base, right here from beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I'm Tim Sandlin from Public Affairs, and together with Tech Sergeant Jay Whitaker, we'll get you up to speed on what's going on here at the Wing. Thanks, Tim. This month's show features a roundtable discussion with the 102nd Recruiters Team. We will also hear a clip from our other podcast, Chevrons, where we speak to the senior enlisted leader of the Massachusetts National Guard, Command Sergeant Major James Campbell. Later, we'll catch up with Master Sergeant Shelby Rice, First Sergeant of the 101st Intelligence Squadron, and Ms. Caitlin Burke, the 102nd Intelligence Wing Sark, as they tell us about the newly formed Military Mother Support Group here at Otis. But first, in this month's command message, 102nd Intelligence Wing Commander Colonel Sean Riley looks back at the history of the wing and forward to the efforts to preserve and develop our static displays for future airmen of the wing. Since its establishment as a separate branch of the Department of Defense, the Air Force and the Air National Guard have accumulated over 75 years of their own history and heritage. For this month's command message, I want to take a look back at the 102nd's history and our efforts to preserve and develop our static displays for the future members of the wing. The 102nd Fighter Group was federally recognized in 1946 at Logan Airport in Boston, and for the next 12 years, flew several different aircraft, everything from the P-51 Mustang to the F-94 Starfire. In 1956, the commander of the 101st Fighter Interceptor Squadron, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Mahoney, perished in an F-94 crash. In his memory, the 101st adopted the Shamrock as their symbol. When the 102nd Fighter Wing converted to the F-86H Sabre, the aircraft would have a Shamrock adorned on its nose and tail. The wing was federally activated and deployed their F-86 Sabres to Fallsburg, France in 1961. Their mission was to provide close air support to NATO ground forces during the Berlin Wall crisis. The unit would serve with distinction and return home in August 1962 with the residents of Boston welcoming home their very own flying shamrocks. From 1964 to 1971, the wing flew the F-84F Thunderstreak, and it was during this time that the wing would move from Logan Airport down to Otis Air Force Base. The wing commander during this period was Brigadier General Charles W. Sweeney, who as the pilot of the B-29 Superfortress boxcar dropped a fat man nuclear bomb on Nagasaki, Japan at the end of World War II. The current plan uh, to display this aircraft is by the new fitness facility in track after they are completed. In 1971, the wing would briefly fly the F-100 Super Saver that had been used during the Vietnam War. This aircraft was affectionately known as the Hun, and this static is dedicated to Lieutenant Colonel Bob Foe, a longtime member of the wing who passed away this fall. When he retired, Foe had amassed a flying career of nearly 35 years and over 5,000 flight hours. Along the way, he became a senior pilot, an expert on more than eight airframes, and held nearly every position available to a pilot, from flight instructor to commander of the historic 101st Fighter Interceptor Squadron. Even in retirement, Foe continued to contribute to the mission of an organization that meant so much to him. He was an active member of the Otis Civilian Advisory Council, 
for many years and was also the longest standing board member of the Eagle's Nest All Ranks Club, dedicating his retired life to enhancing the morale and well-being of veterans throughout the region. About a year after the Hun, the 102nd would convert to the Mach 2 capable F-106 Delta Dart and start a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year air defense alert commitment, a mission the wing would perform for over 36 years. Intercepts of Russian Tu-95 Bear bombers occurred on a regular basis. The Soviet aircraft coming out of Cuba were typically de detected along the eastern seaboard when they entered the Aedes, a buffer zone around our national airspace, which extends approximately 250 miles offshore. When the F-106 was retired from their inventory, they were converted to the QF-106 and used as target drones. So only the remaining aircraft are in museums or private collections. The 102nd is actively searching for a Delta Dart that we could acquire to restore and display. The wing was originally scheduled to convert to the F-16, but a last minute change brought the Eagle to our ramp. For over 20 years, the wing would fly the F-15. They deployed to Panama in support of Operation Cornet Nighthawk, intercepting illegal shipments of drugs. In 1999, the 101st Fighter Squadron deployed to Insulik Air Base in Turkey to enforce the no-fly zone over Iraq as part of Operation Northern Watch. And on September 11, 2001, we were the first unit to respond to the attack on the World Trade Center. This static is one of the aircraft that took off on that historic morning. The wing continued flying combat air patrols over the northeastern U.S. as part of Operation Noble Eagle. Our last combat air patrol was flown on 24 January 2008. Starting with an intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance group and an air operations group, the 102nd Fighter Wing was officially redesignated as the 102nd Intelligence Wing on 6 April 2008. The 102 ISR group, a.k.a. GGS Massachusetts, supported its first MQ-1 combat sortie on December 1, 2009. The wing's newest static display is this aircraft, tail number 983051. You can expect to see the Predator on display this spring in between the F-86 and the wing headquarters building. A special thank you to the 102nd uh, Civil Engineering Squadron who got this static in place uh, right before the holidays. This T-33 shooting star commemorates General Daniel Chappie James's time at Otis and his connection to Joint Base Cape Cod. In 1951, Chappie arrived at Otis Air Force Base and was signed, assigned as a fighter pilot with the 58th Fighter Interceptor Squadron. While assigned to Otis, he was promoted to Major and then to Lieutenant Colonel and assumed command of the 60th Fighter Interceptor Squadron. During his tour at Otis, he received the Massachusetts Junior Chamber Commerce Award, Young Man of the Year for 1954 for his outstanding community relations efforts. After Otis, now Colonel James would go on to become the Vice Commander of the 8th Tactical Fighter Wing, Yubon Air Base, Thailand, serving under Colonel Robin Olds. During the Vietnam War, he personally flew 78 combat sorties over North Vietnam. 
After the war, he served at Wheeler Air Force Base in Libya, Libya as Muammar Gaddafi was rising to power. He was nominated for promotion to Brigadier General in 1970 by President Richard Nixon and was assigned to the office of the Secretary of Defense. He quickly rose to the general officer ranks and on September 1st, 1975, he was assigned as the commander of the North American Defense Command, Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado, and promoted to the rank of four-star general, the first African-American to attain that rank in U.S. military history. So I hope you enjoyed our trip back in time and learned something new about the rich history and heritage of both the Air Force and the Air National Guard. Thanks for what you do each and every day. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Doing well. How about yourself? I can't complain. I'm, um, I'm here. Let's introduce the panel. We have the recruiters here from the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Just want to talk to you guys for a minute and see, uh, get a chance to know y'all and have our listeners get a chance to know who you are. We'll start off to my right, who we have here on the panel today. I'm Tech Sergeant Duff. Um, I've been part of the 102nd for about 14-ish years now. Uh, I was a 1-0 and for about 12 years, and then I cross-trained into 1-4 X-Alpha. Um, I'm originally from the South Coast area, so I uh, grew up in a cushion at New Bedford, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much my background. There you go. Cool, cool. I'm a Tech Sergeant King. I'm originally from New York. I'm uh, originally a 4Y, which is a dental assistant, and I came out here three years ago to be a recruiter, um, so it's been fun. Uh, Who's next? <laughs> I think that would be me. So, uh, Tech Sergeant Sean Johnson. I've been with the 102nd Intelligence Wing since 2013. Spent the first eight or so years of my career as an all-source intelligence analyst, or a 1-0-X-1, like similarly to Alex Duff here. Uh, grew up in Mashpee, right here, right outside the Falmouth Gate on Cape Cod, which, ironically, that's the area that I cover now as a recruiter. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's it about me. Tech Sergeant Tim Thorpe, uh, originally from Rhode Island, uh, coming up on my 10-year anniversary with the 102nd, uh, formerly a 1D7. Uh, yeah, I think I can pass it over to <laughs> the boss right now. Good morning. I'm Master Sergeant Kevin O'Brien. I've been in uh, the military for 19 years, about four of it active duty, and I passed Chase into the Guard um, to uh, join civil engineering, and I've been in recruiting for about 11 years now as the uh, flight chief the last two years there you go well here's our panel for today first of all thank you all for your time and just coming through today um if you could how's how's recruiting going for 2023 so far i know it's at the beginning of the year but how are we are we off to a good start or i feel like we are uh, i feel i feel like we better than last year of course yes so i know absolutely. it's been i know it's been challenging with everything from the pandemic is and you know how has that affected recruiting now I think as far as the pandemic goes, you know, uh, myself, Sergeant Duff, Sergeant Johnson, we kind of came towards the end of it. So we got a little taste of it. Uh, Sergeant King more or less lived in it. Um, you know, the pandemic had its struggles, but as far as what the outcome is, is we still see plenty of people who are interested in serving. And as far as the hurdles that come with that is, is more so on the qualification side. Um, we had our little, you know, big hiccup in 2022, beginning of 2022 with uh, Emeralds Genesis and kind of getting our feet wet with that and, you know, developing new systems and, and ways to work around it. But now I feel like we're all pretty immersed in it, have a good understanding of what they want from us, what they want from the applicants, and now we're able to kind of hit the ground running. 
Okay. Uh, what's uh, are there any new things that are being implemented right now? Like like you just mentioned, some new systems or, or. Yeah, so I could take that one. And so Sergeant Thorpe mentioned uh, M Roads Genesis, mm-hmm. uh, which is a new government initiative program, whatever you want to call it, that allows the chief medical officer and the medical staff at the MEPS, so the Military Entrance Processing Station, to uh, essentially pull civilian healthcare records uh, from civilian applicants. Mm-hmm. So historically, when we all joined, you know, if you had a light case of acne or flat feet or flat feet <laughs> and decided to withhold that information from your recruiter for whatever reason. As long as you continue to do that, nothing would have came of it. But nowadays, Mm. you can't do that anymore. So we uh, demand, frankly, honesty from our applicants from the earliest point in the process because it just helps us help them. Right. And and what I I really wanted to, you know, I I know a lot of y'all personally. And so I, I, I see the work that you guys put in. And I know this is a. I, there are struggles and challenges. I mean, what in Massachusetts alone? There's what twelve of. Correct me if I'm wrong. Twelve recruiters. Or? I think nine. About nine. Nine. Two flight chiefs. Two. Yeah. yeah, we have two flight chiefs, two retention managers, our superintendent, and then on the eastern part of the state, for the one hundred second, we have five recruiters, and for the western part of the state, they just hired their uh, most recent recruiters. So they have a total of four. So nine. Nine. Prop, uh, production recruiters out in the streets, uh, going to schools and cafeterias and all that fun stuff, um, which is uh, not that many in comparison to other branches. Right. Where they have, you know, sometimes tenfold of the amount of recruiters that do the same job that our recruiters are doing. And that, how do y'all take care of yourselves in that in that regard? You know, do y'all have specific regions that you guys work? or? Yeah, so our zones are broken up by um, – Obviously, the school, we, we mainly focus on the schools that we're going to cover, uh, but that usually breaks down pretty close to county lines. Uh, so I have South Coast, um, which is mostly Plymouth County, uh, New Bedford, Fall River, um, t- uh, part of Taunton. Tim and I kind of share Taunton. Um, but one of the ways you try to, you got to do a little bit more with less, right? So where uh, Master Sergeant O'Brien was saying that some of the other branches have more recruiters, which also means that they have um, more availability to get into the schools. Mm. Their relationships with school administrators and the students um, ends up being a little stronger. But um, I think what we do is we have to find a way to prioritize our time between being in the schools and doing the active recruiting side of it, as well as being able to do the administrative side of it. And I think um, our our team does a pretty good job of that and it's showing in our numbers this year i'll carry on i have uh, a little bit of boston and uh, essex county um and uh yeah yeah i cover like i said in the intro cape cod where i grew up i cover the islands nantucket and martha's vineyard and the lion's share of the south shore i think we hand off somewhere in the brockton area and then I cover uh, pretty much that whole Rhode Island line, so Swansea to uh, is it Tingsboro? I just I, I, I got more north recently. Is that how you, is that is that? I'm yeah, that's good I, enough. Yeah, yeah I good we, enough. Yeah, so I think we should count how many times he says Rhode Island today. Okay, do it. Do it. It'll be it'll be a, a fun um, coffee sipping game okay, for, for listeners. So yeah, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so pretty much four ninety five straight up. So I gotta ask, what's it like? To, uh, you guys are obviously going into high schools and colleges, uh, you know, talking to to applicants and everything. What's it like going up there and just talking in front of people like that? 
I, that's a good part of the job. That's the p- part of the job that I kind of expected going into it. That would be um, more of my time. Right. Um, but that's easy. You're meeting people. They don't know much about the guard. Um, so their questions are usually pretty easy to answer. Um, and once you get to know somebody a little bit, you can help them figure out how the National Guard could help them get to their goals, right? Um, and that's the part of the job that I enjoy. So, What are, mo- what are most applicants looking for nowadays? You know, um, is, is, there, is there a large trend? Is it more people want to travel? People want to uh, for college? I what trends are we seeing? I wouldn't say that there's one overwhelming umbrella okay. thing that they're looking for. And that, again, is, is to speak on Sergeant Duff's point is, you know, we're very fortunate that we have such a great product that we're able to kind of touch, you know, anybody's individual goals. So whether it is travel, whether it is school, whether it's, you know, I, I want to just security for my family, whether it's financially, medically, you know, the Air National Guard touches all of those different facets. So we're very fortunate as far as the product that we have. It's more so the next steps of, all right, we have such a good product. Now we have to develop that trust. And when yeah. you when you come to the unit, you know, one of the things that I tell applicants who maybe don't have that uh, resource at home is you're going to see people with a lot of the same name tags here. <laughs> and it's because, you know, they have mom, uncle, aunt, dad. Wife. Who, yes, wife. Well, husband, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, who can reassure that no, the product is as good as the recruiters are saying. Right. So, you know, I, not to say that this is what everyone else does, but I think they do, you know, go out, do your research, because I think that once you see what not just militarily the other branches or components have to offer, you know, just jobs in general, what they have to offer, we have a great product and we're very fortunate to have such a good product. It's just a matter of, again, qualification. Yeah. Anybody else want I, th- I think uh, when I first got here, uh, some of the things that we were selling are definitely different from now. Mm. I think we originally started out with uh, trades um, and job security, and now everybody has job openings due to the economic changes that we have. So now we're really trying to just cater to that, that environment that we're in at the time. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the SPEED Act. I know that's been an, a new thing that's happened in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, how is how Have you all seen... Uh, an influx of, of recruits just basically interested in that? or I think it's still kind of early on that. I think the jury is still out. I think we're still communicating what that bill entails and, and kind of just getting it out on the street. Uh, just to take a step back, the SPEED Act stands for the Military Spouse License Portability Education and Enrollment of Dependents Act. And it was basically one of the last things that Governor Baker signed before he left office. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but the main point that I, I think for us as recruiters we kind of bring onto the street is the ability for Massachusetts Air National Guardsmen to transfer their state tuition and fee waiver mm-hmm. to an eligible lieutenant. So what's an eligible dependent? That's a spouse. That's your child, whether it's uh, you know by birth or you adopted that child. As long as they're enrolled in DEERS as your dependent, you can transfer that benefit to them. I think the brass of it is six years service under your belt so that's your first contract for most air national guardsmen and then six years of retainability so from that point of view it kind of mirrors the post 9-11 gi bill mm-hmm. but yeah it's been a, a super selling point particularly for prior service applicants i don't know if anybody else has anything to add but now yeah for for mostly prior service so are we getting a lot of folks from prior service or lately that's our bread and butter pretty much yeah yeah i'd say it's safe to say if we didn't have prior service we wouldn't come anywhere close to our goal like okay. it's, it's, 
that makes it worse. I agree with that. So I, I hear a lot from uh, active duty folks looking to transition to the guard, and generally the tiebreaker now is well, we have this benefit that other states don't have. Right. So, you know, we, we gain probably more enlistments that are coming from the New England area opposed to the state that they may be actually moving back to. Um, so for us, again, we're incredibly fortunate to have the benefits that we have. And as, you know, as long as our, that information is getting out there, um, our, jobs is, our jobs are significantly easier um, with that information being shared. So anytime I talk to somebody coming from active duty, um, you know, it's, that's one of the first things I highlight now because it is such an incredible benefit. There you go. Thank you. Anybody else? All right. So I gotta ask. I know. I know. It's. I know. It's an easy question. But why did you want to become a recruiter? I'll start. I guess. Um, so I wanted to become a recruiter because uh, from where I started in life to where I'm at now, I pretty much owe most of that to being um, a member of the Air National Guard, and moreover, uh, the 102nd, because specifically. My intelligence skills allowed me to get civilian jobs on the outside or get experiences um, that kind of shaped me into who I am. And I think um, trying to give that back to people who don't know much about the National Guard and more over the Air National Guard. Everybody kind of knows the Army exists, uh, but the Air doesn't have as big of, um, I guess, a following or understanding in the general public. So... Um, that was kind of a big reason for me, help people get to their goals and let them know that you can start from, you know, the lowest economic rung. And this can take you to at least middle to upper middle class as long as you um, say yes often and, and do the things you're supposed to do. There you go. Yeah, I'll piggyback on that and say that's the same thing. I had the unique opportunity of uh, being on the other side of the equation as a veteran counselor. So for me, I just wanted to experience something else. I know that a lot of times veterans get out and they have a lot of gripes and complaints. So I wanted to, you know, be on the front end, hopefully to give people the opportunity as times change to be in the military and hopefully they get the right service following their, their time in. And I've obviously, if you navigate it right, um, you can come from nothing to something, which is, which is huge and yeah. where I come from. So I definitely appreciate what the military has given to me. And I definitely want to offer that to other people. Yeah, I think you'll, hear a similar note from pretty much all of us yeah. I, i'll kind of just continue that theme and just say that i became a recruiter because i wanted to help basically realize the potential and people that don't even realize they had the you know something burning with inside of them you know just and try to ex, you know extract that and and use it to their benefit and frankly ours you know yeah. that's that's one of the reasons why i did it it's it's probably the best part of the job is where you meet some kid in a cafeteria and you see that individual go through the process and list go to basic training, come back, and they're starting to make a positive impact here at the 102nd, and then you're starting to see doors open to them on the outside that they had no chance of even getting to if yeah. it wasn't for that little interaction that you had with them. That's really cool. That's really cool to hear. It's great to be fourth and uh, parrot most <laughs> of what everyone else said. But, uh, no, you know, uh, as far as when it comes to, to the idea of, of helping people and, again, achieve their goals, like it, it is, it's just – it's a it's a very fulfilling thing as far as in your career. Um, you know, there are plenty of days where you have to deliver bad news, but it just makes the good news that much better. Mm. Um, you know, I, I coach outside of this, so it kind of falls in the same realm of that is you, you, you're coaching someone to hopefully achieve a goal that they want to achieve. And now I get to do that within my career. And when I was going through the recruiting process, uh, I was fortunate enough to go down to basic training with four other guys. Uh, and there was, I, I just always remember a day where, you know, they shelled out all the paperwork 
and I watched, you know, 46 of my flights scramble and, uh, you know, an MTI scream at him saying, you know, your, your recruiter should have done this with you, blah, blah, blah. And all of us Otis guys were all squared away. So That's good. I knew I was going into, you know, a good culture uh, who really cared about people and wanted to make sure that they were going into a good situation. Flight chief. Yeah, so I've been doing this My a recruiter. long time. <laughs> I've recruited a lot of people, <laughs> um, and, and for great reasons. I, I know for me joining, uh, something I kind of stumbled into. I was at a b- friend of mine's house, and the recruiter was there, and everything sounded so wonderful. <coughs> um, and, you know, that was an active duty recruiter. You, you don't really know what you're getting into. Um, but the reason I got into it is because it, my life is, is infinitely phenomenal based on my decision that day of joining um i don't know where my life would be if i had not joined so being in the position of the recruiter you know we we help guide people and you know the the direction sometimes they know exactly what they want to do sometimes they don't and uh to see people come in in a position where you're you're meeting a a dunkin donuts for the first time they have no idea what they want to do and a few years later, they're, you know, an officer. Uh, they got the great job they wanted. They graduated college, and they would never have had a pathway of doing that. Um, so for me, like Sergeant Thorpe was saying, it is incredibly frustrating sometimes, but the rewards of doing this job and helping somebody and, and making their life better in an impact, impactful way, um, there's no greater feeling than, than seeing people do well. And that's, you know, why I'm, I'm in this job and why I um, continue to stay in recruiting and, and will likely finish the rest of my career in this in this position well i'm grateful for you you you, br- you brought me over i mean i was the prior service calling from the utah air national guard and uh, uh i was calling on behalf of my wife you know because she was thinking about joining i was i was a disgruntled uh ncl on the phone and i was like let me talk to the recruiter and i actually spoke with you and you were like so what's going on with you and uh and and here i am so you know i'm always grateful for you so that uh i had to share that I do have to, I do, are, are, are the recruiters looking for more recruiters? Are, are, how are you, are, are y'all hiring? <laughs> What's going on, Flight Chief? As a matter of fact, we are hiring. <laughs> um, so if anybody out there is interested, you can you can definitely hit me up and I'll be happy to answer your questions. It is, uh, I got to warn you, it is incredibly challenging. Um, it's not, you know, it's not always job briefs and enlistment yeah. days. There's a lot of work behind the scenes for those days to happen. Um, but no, we're looking sooner than later to have uh, somebody else join the team um, in the near future. Not always high fives in the cafeteria right now. <laughs> no, no. Is it, in one word, and I don't care who goes first, but in, uh, what what would be, if you're talking to somebody that wants to be a recruiter, what, in one word, what would you, what trait would they need most? Adaptability. Okay. Um, I, th- I think, well, I have a tendency when I start a new position to kind of highlight, in my mind, I highlight all the positives of a job, right? So the expectation of what recruiting is going in is, uh, Tim jokes about it, but it's because I say it all the time. I thought it was going to be me in a cafeteria at a <laughs> high school, just high-fiving kids, signing them up, like, yeah, you're right, we're good to go. Here's no, a water bottle. There's so <laughs> much more, yeah, there's so much more admin that goes on in the background Yeah, um, that, I didn't realize the recruiters had a hand in, right? So you, you're like partially medical expert. You're partially uh, legal expert. Um, you got to learn how to cross your T's and dot your I's from a paperwork perspective, which is a lot. 
um, to make sure that obviously it, the, the applicant eventually becomes an enlistee. They got to get paid properly. You got to make sure everything was input correctly. You're checking the regs to make sure their rank is correct. All of that stuff is extremely important to the applicant and eventually the enlistee. And if you screw that up, like that's a big deal. That's, it's yeah. not just a low impact job where you, you don't have a real effect on their future. If, if someone comes as an, in as an airman basic or they don't get a bonus because I screwed up paperwork, that's a big deal. Mm. So adaptability. Okay. I guess I'll keep it simple. I'll say communication. Um, I, I think overall we have to do a lot of communicating with a lot of people and, and any given moment you have to be prepared to, you know, do some little, some, uh, public speaking, I would say. Uh, so you have to be able to be ready at any time to speak about what the military has to offer, um, the benefits. And, you know, we work together a lot too. So I would, uh, we're a team, so we need to be able to communicate with each other, um, be able to help each other with different aspects of the recruiting, um, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, I'd say, you know, that's I agree with Paul Harley with what they're saying. Thick skin is probably what I would say. Thick There's skin. The, okay. the path from, you know, Timmy in a cafeteria to Timmy and listening is a path that's littered with roadblocks and <laughs> minefields. I, I use Timmy <laughs> because that was the, uh, you remember when we were at recruiting school, Sergeant Duff, where, where Sergeant Beck was our recruiter, and he used to use Timmy for all his examples. Oh, okay. So okay. now I've kind of just brought that with me to the, to the, to the field. But, yeah, it's not easy, and it is just constant roadblocks in the way and, and, and trying to navigate those and, and not get your feelings hurt. That's – that's a challenging part of the job, particularly in your first year in recruiting. And then you start to, you know, be able to roll with the punches. There's a really good scene from Jerry Maguire that Sergeant Duff and I like to talk about where uh, Jerry and Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, right, where he's trying to, like, get the passion out of him. He, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, this is an up and down, pride-swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean that to scare anybody away yeah. or anything like that, but it's just thick skin. You just have to have the ability to roll with the punches, and as long as you have the ability to do that, the fruit that comes at the end of the, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the path is it makes it all worth it. Uh, I'll say humble. Um, as far as mm. everything that we do, you know, it's. Uh, Everyone at this table has to have some form of confidence, you know, as far as when you're selling the product or when you're getting up and speaking with someone. So, you know, th there's plenty of extroverts at this table. But when you're dealing with somebody's, you know, life and their goals, you really have to, you know, have that empathy. You have to be humble. You have mm. to, you know, when they're not getting you their paperwork on time or they're not returning your text messages, you have to take a deep breath and more or less say, like, this guy is just trying to do something better for his life yeah. and I'm just the catalyst trying to get him there. And then on the other side of it, you know, when things are slow when you're struggling, you know, obviously our job is, is focused around a number. Um, but you know, those numbers are obviously people. So when, when it's a struggle, you have to be humble enough to, you know, raise your hand and ask for help. And when, you know, when you're riding a hot wave, like that's great, but like it's only because you're helping people. So you got to kind of stay humble through through the maze of it all. But uh, as long as you're doing that and you're putting the applicant and what their desires and their goals are first, uh, that kind of more or less is the gasoline that drives you or the electricity, whatever world we're living in now, I guess. So <laughs> I would say passionate. You know, I, I feel as if um, as a recruiter, I've always – treated my applicants the way I would have been like to have been recruited. And um, <laughs> in turn, I think all the recruiters do the same thing. They 
they really care for their their applicants. You know, some are much easier to work with than others, but at the end of the day, you're in a in a position where you're you're helping somebody benefit in their life. And um, by are you right, Dennis? It's okay. <laughs> but uh, it's it, you do have to be passionate for this position. You know, if you're thinking you're just going to come in, it's a job that you a job just to get paid well. You know, we do get paid well. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the, the what what you should be doing in that position as a recruiter. Yeah, um, you definitely should be passionate and and want to work hard for your applicants. And in turn, you know, if you did a great job, they're then telling a friend or family member, and that's how our numbers grow. Is um, the work that the recruiters put in, taking care of their applicants, and then the word spreads, and we all have benefit from that. Okay. Well, no, I appreciate you uh, just for I appreciate all y'all all of your answers because. I didn't expect that many. I, I figured there would be like, oh, uh, oh, he took that one. No, you actually came up with a lot of different ones that I didn't expect. Um, favorite region to work? I, I do. I, I am curious. You know, I, I gotta, I gotta know. Like, are there any, are there any particular regions in the great state of Massachusetts? Tim, you're not allowed to say Rhode Island. Yeah, and I was, or Rhode I, Island. I, I was, this I was, is a disclaimer. <laughs> Tim does not recruit in Rhode Island. <laughs> But man, it's great, Kevin from Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> we'll count that as three. <laughs> I, I can't choose a region over another. That I'd, would make other regions upset. I'd say wherever <laughs> there's like an army base. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just yeah, I'm just curious. Sean, where's your favorite place on Cape? I, mean, I, I think I, I think Duff can can appreciate this answer too. It's cool because I get to recruit in the area that I went to school. Okay, and where yeah. I grew up, and I have a wife that works in the education system, so I have a lot of cross pollinating from this job from when I was, frankly, a student. You know, at Mashpee High School. So yeah. I think from that perspective, it's pretty cool. Um, and, and this community is is very familiar with. Otis Air Force Base yeah. or Otis Air National Guard Base. A lot of them, ironically, still think the F-15s are parked on the runway. But <laughs> it's my job to, you know, coach them up and let them know that it's not. So for me, personally, I'd, I'd say, you know, being able to do this job in the area that I call home and grew up is, is pretty neat. I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, Anything else before we get out of here? Uh, no, I don't. I, like, from a zone perspective, I kind of want to give a chance to call out, like, we, we, there are certain administrators and there are certain schools that allow more access to their students in a more pointed way. And like we were saying earlier with um, how we have to maximize our time. And I think, I think every recruiter is trying to find their niche, like their niche within their zones. Um, one thing that I'm trying to do is get access to students with some of our unit members on a, on a, um, especially with Vogue schools on a basis where, if you're in electrical or if you're in a CE type job, we can bring CE unit members yeah. over. And I think uh, Sergeant Johnson's done the actual, the inverse, which is another goal of mine. I don't know if any of the other recruiters are on this yet, but um, bringing students from a school within a, uh, a field and bringing them directly to the field that they might be able to do in on the base. So um, taking, uh, if, Sean, if you want to talk about it for a minute, but um Essentially, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is the zone isn't as important mm -hmm. as the people in that zone. I had, I had one school administrator that was at one of my schools um, 
and that school didn't allow me much access, but she remembered me. She went to another high school and she reached out to me direct. And that school allows me access, which is where I'm saying like the administrators and the faculty of those schools is far more important than the school itself because their, their openness to us can change over time. Absolutely. So just building relationships essentially. Yeah. So no, uh, Uh, I don't know if Sean wanted to kind of go off talk about his recent, Trip yeah, yeah. Had, yeah. Uh, thanks for the plug. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we're actually kind of still in the, the laboratory experimentation phase of what we're trying to do here. But last week, we were fortunate enough to bring about, uh, what would you say, Sergeant Brian, 25, 30 students from Upper Cape Tech uh, Regional High School over there in Bourne, literally a stone throw away from the gate here. Right, that's awesome. Um, and they were from the IT shop, so the information technology shop, which obviously is kind of our bread and butter here at the Intelligence Wing. And I think to kind of go back to you know, full circle here. We started talking about COVID and some of the struggles with that. Like we weren't able to bring students from anywhere, frankly, right. to the base and, and vice versa. You know, we didn't have access to that. Um, so having the opportunity to do that and kind of showcase the skills of the, uh, you know, the men and women here at the 102nd was, was really cool. And I think it was eye opening, frankly, for a lot of the, the students there. And, you know, we'll see if, uh, you know, some of them decide to start the process, but I think more and more exposure is only a good thing in our line of work. I don't are there any specific career fields that are currently hot items? I would say it's it's almost based on the recruiter, you know, because we all come from such different career fields. So when we're out there selling, you know, we're more or less – the thing that is so easy for us to sell is our own experience. So, you know, Sergeant Duff and Sergeant Johnson have a lot of uh, intel enlistments. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot on the cyber side. Uh Sergeant King has a lot of, of medical, you know. Yeah, um, they're still yeah. Dental yeah. two spots. <laughs> yes, it, well, no, but as far as even, you know, those types of trends. So, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we, uh, at least, again, I don't want to speak for anyone else. I try to do a good job of not just selling cyber now um, as far as I, I use it as more or less a back pocket thing. Like if someone kind of doesn't see, it doesn't seem like they're getting the information that they want as enough to push them forward then, you know, I reach in my back pocket and I sell a more specific experience. But again, the thing that we do that I think is, you know, better than what 90% of other recruiters do is, you know, is our process. We get them qualified. We bring them back to our office. We tell them the jobs that they're qualified for. And instead of pushing, you know, three or four sheets of paper in front of them, we say, hey, come to the base and see those jobs. See the unit that you're going to join. See if it's a culture that you want to be a part of. Uh, as opposed to just going up to maps and, you know, being force-fed whatever's in front of you at that very moment. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing that sells most people, most parents, you know, as far as, like, yeah. hey, we're, we're, we're not here to hustle, you know, your kid in on a moment's win. Like, we want to make sure that this decision is exactly what they want and is, uh, is truly going to benefit what they're looking to do. Absolutely. If, actually, if I push a job, I usually try to push the, the full-time route. Um, so I usually go with those jobs, like the one and knows, uh, three POs. Um, just, you know, if you're looking to make a career out of this, and really you should go to college. But if you are choosing not to, um, you should definitely look at the trades that are going to ben- benefit you long-term as far as financially and uh, and help you career-wise. Out. Yeah, yeah. Help you on the outside. What can we do as members of one of the? Uh, what can we do as uh, members of the one hundred second to help you guys? What do y'all need most? How can I, we help y'all? I, I, I just want to say uh, thank you for having us. This mm-hmm. is probably going to be one of the, the big things that we've done over the past couple of years. We haven't done anything like this, so this is just great, and we appreciate you um, for your time okay. and effort. Okay.
I, I'll say the same, but um, I will say unit referrals um, is a big deal because we have people returning from tech school that have a knowledge of active duty counterparts that mm. are going to be eventually either ETSing entirely or going to the reserves of the guards. Um, and so I, I'm actually trying this in my personal life a little. Well, it, it, as a recruiter, I thought I went to one in four alpha school um, about two years ago. So all my counterparts that were either in my JCAT class or in my San Angelo class would be hitting the palace chase window. So I started reaching out to him and I have three that seem pretty promising as potential, um, potentially coming back and being a part of the one Oh second. So, um, in that same vein, any, anybody who thinks of unit referrals as only looking at friends and family, I think they're missing a big market of active duty counterparts that don't know anything about the national guard. And I think, a lot of members know this when they talk to people from the active duty and they bring up Air National Guard being full time, being AGR, what a, a, the tuition and fees um, benefit now. Um, those types of things are lost on active duty members. Mm. And that gives us an opportunity. And I don't know how many people realize this, but the in-service recruiters typically push reserves over guard. So if we aren't actively pursuing that market, then we're going to miss out on them likely unless huh. they know about us already. Is there a reason that, and you know, if you don't know, you don't know, but is there a reason that uh, reserves gets pushed over guard? Uh, yes, there is. So there is many, many more reserve ISRs than there are air national guard uh, ISRs, which are in service recruiters. Yeah. Um, Reason being, funding has always been an issue, but typically once a, an ISR from the Air National Guard leaves a location, another ISR picks it up for six to eight to ten months before the, while they're hiring another recruiter. So oftentimes, um, if, if we look at our listing of in-service recruiters, some of them are covering, you know, sometimes four, five, six bases at a time. Oh, wow. So they're not, they're not co-located at that, that active duty base where the reservist recruiters are. So they have an office there, and they're, it's an easy enlistment for them. I see. So they they have um, they put lot more time and attention to to trying to get people from active duty when our in service recruiters are doing the best like they can. So sometimes as a recruiter, we'll hear from somebody from active duty and then we'll get them in touch in the inverse to the in service recruiter and all work together to get them get them home or to a unit they want to be a part of. Right on. Well, I did not know that. So thank you. Of course. Well, I know y'all got plenty of recruiting to do. I know y'all, some of y'all got to drive out to your favorite regions today and uh, maybe some Duncans to get. Maybe, I know, Sergeant Thorpe, I know you got to go to Rhode Island eventually. So. At some point today. <laughs> At some point. <laughs> if I want to sleep. So, but uh, again, thank you so much just for joining the podcast and, and just uh, sharing some thoughts about recruiting today. And uh, I hope y'all have a wonderful Air Force Day. Y'all take care. Thanks, thanks for man. having thank us. You. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. We're here to talk about the Military Mom Support Group, and joining me, I have a wonderful panel with me today. Who do we have in studio? Good morning or good afternoon. This is Mass Sergeant Shelby Rice, and I am the first sergeant of the 101 IS. And I'm Caitlin Burke. I am the Wing Sark. So the Military Mom Support Group, how did this come about? Okay, so it came about as an idea that was given to me by Miss Jill Garvin, our DPH, and also uh, Kate, 
um, as the SARC, and I think it really stemmed from an increase of um, postpartum uh, anxiety and depression, and also we've had a big baby boom, not only in my squadron, but I think in the wing, there's just been a lot of new babies. So um, I think we just saw an area that needed to be focused on, and that's how it started. I don't know if Kate, you have more to add to that? Yeah, that was kind of the idea. I mean, and then, like, I have a two-year-old, and there were, like, some struggles that I have faced with her in the past that it would have been nice to have this kind of support group um, back when I was in the military, and we didn't have that. So it's nice to see this change being made. What are some of the new changes that are being implemented? Sure. So um, we actually just had our first meeting last row weekend, and it was really just a introduction into the support group and also what our intent with the support group is. So we really just spent that, uh, the first actually, I think went over an hour um, doing an icebreaker and introducing each other to one another because it was very, very diverse as far as um, members around the wing. So we introduced ourselves and, you know, told each other, how many kids, and maybe some of the struggles we have as military moms as well. Um, and it was very relatable, uh, and it was a good point to connect and network. But, um, yeah, we have a lot of things coming up. I think uh, it's a very dynamic group as far as what we focus on. But um, as I'm sure people watch the news, there's a lot of things locally going on um, around uh, local news. So uh, this drill will be focusing more on mental health um, in general, but also postpartum anxiety, depression, and psychosis, and just have like a open conversation about that. Um, are there any good resources available to to our members um, outside outside of the support group? At, uh Absolutely. <laughs> there's only there's almost like so many resources, um, especially for military members, and I know it can be overwhelming. So using um, people like your first sergeant or the DPH or um, Kate Burke, the SARC, just to understand all those uh, resources and shout out to military family readiness as well. Yep. Um, they Love have them. a lot of good resources, but I know it can also be overwhelming, but um, I think there's definitely a lot to be learned as far as resources, uh, policy, regulations when it comes to being a mom in the military. Um, so we'll definitely be focusing on that in some of the meetings as well. Yeah, and that's like a huge thing on the group getting together is that, you know, some of these moms have already been through it. We have some that are brand new, and they can kind of come, and if they have questions, they can get advice from the ones who have just gone through it or more recently have just had babies, um, especially when it comes to those policies and stuff like that. That is a great resource to navig navigate through those military policies. Yeah, I believe one of the topics that came up last uh, meeting was uh, maternity uniforms as far as do we have to pay for them, do we get reimbursed, how do we get maternity uniforms. Um, and Colonel Mullis was actually able to send out a wing-wide email to clarify that um, everybody in the wing, if uh, they become pregnant, they're uh, able to get two free maternity uniforms. So that was just a big, um, I don't know. That's a game yeah, it helps a lot because... Uh, Back in the day when I had my first kid, I had to pay for my maternity uniform. So I think it's come a long way as far as resources and um, supporting parents, but also also moms has definitely come a long way. So it's exciting. When, how often do y'all meet? Right now we're just meeting um, on Saturdays of each drill weekend. Um, so once a month. Yeah. Yep. 
yeah, as long as it's needed, we'll keep on doing it every month. Um, we also have a Facebook group that people are able to communicate with. And I also share resources or upcoming events and meetings for moms specifically. So um, if we don't see each other in between a month, it's also a good group to join just to um, talk about things, whether it's asking for recommendations for pediatricians or um, maybe if uh, your child has special needs and you're looking for some resources that way. It's just a good good Facebook group to kind of throw those questions at all uh, military moms. Right. No, and I think it's just a great to have a, a network of, of mothers and, and, and people that just really can help out with, you know, with with anything that, because being a parent, let's, let's be real. We're all mm-hmm. parents sitting here, <laughs> you know, and uh, I know, it, I know it's incredibly hard and then we have deployments or exercises. So childcare, you know, the, there's so many things that in myriads of, 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 um, uh, circumstances that can be you know where you just need help so i i I, you know kudos to y'all just for even putting this together i think it's going to be wonderful to help out the 102nd and hopefully uh other units and other uh, wings can follow suit you know and hopefully um we can just be able to take care of our people better you know what i mean absolutely so uh, how can people get in touch with with you all or um, yeah, so you can get in touch with any of your first sergeants, um, but also I am a full-time first sergeant with a 101 IS, um, and so is our DPH, Jill Garvin, and also Kate Burke is full-time as well, so uh, we're here almost all the time, so reach out to us, but uh, we look forward to growing the group and hopefully focusing on uh, things and improving them as well. All right, well, so. thank y'all for stopping by. I do appreciate it, and y'all have a wonderful day. Thank you. Before we go, here's a bit of a preview of our other podcast, Chevrons. From junior enlisted to senior leaders and those in between, we interview notable individuals to address everyday challenges and hurdles the enlisted force faces. In this episode, we welcome the senior enlisted leader of the Massachusetts National Guard, Command Sergeant Major James Campbell. We welcome him into the studio to talk about the development, readiness, and mentorship of the soldiers and airmen of the Massachusetts National Guard. Along the way, we learn a little bit about Command Sergeant Major Campbell's military story, as well as how he ended up as the ninth state senior enlisted leader. What are some of the things that you're coming into your office with? Now, you've been in place about six months. Uh, it's given you time to kind of like look at the landscape. Where are your priorities? Where are your focus areas gravitating to now? It, it's a great question. I, it's, it's not the, the first time somebody's asked me my priorities. Um, you know, as a senior enlisted leader, you know, my boss's priorities are my priorities. right? And that's that's how every senior enlisted leader should look at it. You know, so when I look at, you know, my priorities – you know, my priorities, I, I look at the Asian general. So his, his priorities are field-winning teams, invest in our people, build enduring relationships, and encourage innovation. Those are his priorities. So, you know, when I look at it, so what do I want to focus on is, like, how can I help him get after those priorities, and how can I help the National Guard, the Massachusetts National Guard, achieve those objectives that the Asian general wants to. Right. And so when I look at it, and, and this is a conversation he and I had when he decided to, to take a chance on me and bring me back to Massachusetts, um, was really looking at it from a leader development perspective. And 
and not just, you know, how to, you know, sending soldiers to school, you know, getting your airman leadership school, getting your basic leader course, your advanced leader course, right? But it's about career progression. It's about how do we, how do we grow our non-commissioned officers so that when they become the next, you know, command chief, state command chief, or the next state command sergeant major, or the next, even the next battalion command sergeant major, or, or, or group command chief, um, are they prepared, right, kind of getting back to what you were saying earlier, it's like, are they prepared to be a good advisor to that commander, right? Do they have, are they able to connect, you know, that commander's vision and that commander's intent, right, translate it for their soldiers and airmen so that the soldier and airmen down at the grassroots, at the, the, the basic level understands why they're doing a task or why they're doing a mission and what's the bigger picture, Um you know, looking at it from, from a National Guard perspective, and I, I, I'm not ashamed to admit it, right? 40 years in the National Guard, uh, and, and, you know, Chief Sullivan, you and I have talked about this a couple of times since I've been back here in the state. Um, you know, had I not stretched myself over the last 10 years to go out and do some things, it, the Massachusetts National Guard, right, every National Guard, but Massachusetts National Guard has a role in the national defense strategy and the national security strategy and, you know, the, the, the defense strategy and, and the goals and objectives of the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So we as guardsmen, right, especially us as senior enlisted leaders, need to understand what our role is so that, A, we know that, you know, our commanders and their intent is getting after those objectives and we can provide them some sound advice so that we can translate it for our soldiers and airmen so that they understand why we're doing it. And it gives them that so what, um, you know, because, you know, the, the Department of Defense, the Army today, right, the Army, the Air Force today is not the Army or the Air Force that you and I enlisted in. Hmm. You know, where, you know, 40 years ago when that drill sergeant or that platoon sergeant said, you know, private, do this, and, and you just went to rigid attention and you said, you know, yes, sergeant, that's, I'll go do that. Soldiers in the Army today want to understand why, and it's okay, right? There's nothing wrong with with, with giving that soldier airman the why. Why are we doing this, right? How does it fit into the bigger picture? Um, and it kind of goes back to the conversation we had earlier today with um, with the wing commander um, that, you know, when, when our soldiers and airmen see the fruits of their labor, when they see the results of what they've done and how it impacts things, in the state, in the commonwealth, in the nation, right? It kind of gives them that sense of satisfaction and it brings them back to work tomorrow, right, to continue to serve. February is full of many holidays like Valentine's Day and President's Day, but it's also Black History Month. Black History Month wasn't always a month though. It actually began as a week. Carter G. Woodson, an American historian and Harvard University PhD, dedicated his efforts to showcase the contributions of black Americans. In 1926, when he launched Negro History Week in the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Black History Month is for everybody. Black History Month is about sharing and celebrating the stories of countless men and women who made a difference in our world. Some achievements are noted more than others, but all of their stories reveal how they changed the world and how we can too. February 7th, 
You're gonna love Tim. I know you're gonna love this one. Really? It's your favorite. It's your favorite dish, fettuccine Alfredo day. That is my favorite dish. Yeah, see. Uh, speaking of, uh, just a couple of days later, on the ninth is National Pizza Day, Bagel Day, and Read in the Bathtub Day. Yeah, I mean, you could. I'm gonna take really? leave that day. I'm gonna take leave and uh, just hang out and, and get some self care and get some pizza and some bagels. Well, maybe I'll hit the dentist because it's also National Toothache Day. Which probably is the big reason why uh, chocolate is such a big theme in February. February 1st is Dark Chocolate Day. Okay, that's the only day you need to know. Forget the rest of it. Dark no, chocolate's the only way to go. It, this is true, but February 5th isn't. Uh, it's this, bittersweet. <laughs> bittersweet. Okay. I, you do this to me every time. <laughs> I love it. February 5th is Nutella Day, Chocolate Fondue Day, uh, National Cream Filled Chocolates Day is on February 14th. Uh, February 25th is Chocolate Covered Nut Day, and February 28th is Chocolate Souffle Day. Why do they have National Toothache Day before all of this? That doesn't make any sense. See? Because uh, uh, February 11th, do you know what February 11th is? What's that? That's National Don't Cry Over Spilled Milk Day. I'm lactose intolerant, too. Oh. I <laughs> uh, got nothing. All right. And and it, yeah. Go, oh. go, go ahead. This is this is for you. Uh, this is not for me. It's for everybody. It's February 14th. We all know that's va- Valentine's Day, but it's also on that particular day. It's Extraterrestrial Culture Day, International Book Giving Day, National Ferris Wheels Day, Pet Theft Awareness Day and National Organ Donor Day. That's a lot going on. Uh, the National Organ Donor Day and Extraterrestrial Culture Day are they related? Hmm. Makes you wonder. Yeah. This is this <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Twilight Zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, did you know February twentieth, nineteen sixty-two, first American orbited the Earth? Trivia question. Who is it? Uh, John Glenn. Senator John Glenn. Who I believe went on to become the oldest person in space. I don't know since all this, these uh, commercial launches as of late, yeah. SpaceX and such. Um, but when he went up uh, last, I believe he was the oldest person in orbit. Well, that's pretty cool. All right, I like he that. Went up on the space shuttle. Okay. Uh, February 22nd is National Margarita Day and Cook a Sweet Potato Day. Would you cook a sweet potato or would you bake a sweet potato? I would bake a sweet potato. I mean, you yeah. can mic- Details are important. It's the, it's the important things that matter. Uh, let's see. Uh, and for all you New Englanders, February 25th is National Clam Chowder Day. Uh, if you're going to say it, you got to say it right. I'm not going to say it. I, I am. It's I, National Clam Chowder I don't. Day. I say my R's, okay? I'm from California. Okay. <laughs> see, they don't have National Clam Chowder Day there. Yeah, we have avocado toast and it's delicious. Uh, <laughs> fried green tomatoes too. I bet. <laughs> um, it's also open that bottle night uh, on February twenty fifth. Not even gonna ask. Yeah, I don't even e- want to know that. But that is. Yeah, we don't even need to know. Anyways, thank you so much for listening to the Seagull. We'll see you back here at the March RSD. For more news from the 102nd Intelligence Wing, visit our website at www.102iw.ang.af.mil links or search for 102iw on any major social media platform. Boom. Golf clap. Yeah.